the core cast. Welcome to the Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to RF Generation Shmup Club. This is a family-friendly shmup-themed podcast that says winners don't use drugs, even if arcade cabins no longer do. I'm Addicted. And I'm Melfro, known otherwise on the internet as the Game Boy Guru. This month we're going to be playing, or, or sorry, we have been playing 1942, with participants Metalfro, Addicted, Easy Racer, the Immortal Duke Togo, Bickman 2K, Normatron, Dingo, Square Air, Newpile, Deadman, and Crabmaster 2000. Yes, and uh, this is all part of RFGeneration.com. Uh, the Shmup Club is a part of that site, and of course, you can go to the site to use the database where you can create a list of all your games create a wish list, and track your collection. And of course, we also have forums. There are articles on the front page that both Addicted and myself contribute to and provide articles every month. And there's lots of great content on the site. Uh, and so make sure you go check that out, rfgeneration.com. My favorite part of rfgeneration.com is the ability that we have multiple regions on there. I love being able to find obscure either let's say brazilian or south american games japanese games korean games it's added in by the community which means you're going to get a lot of stuff you wouldn't see in other collection tracking tools absolutely yeah it's fantastic i i love the collection tracking database and uh i also really enjoy the 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 form itself uh just because you know it's fun to you know get topics going and talk to people about things and uh um, plus the Discord, you know, we've got a Discord channel for RF Generation, and so that's been pretty active as well, a lot of good discussion. Speaking of discussion, would you start us off for the 1942? Yes, so 1942 was developed by Capcom, a.k.a. Kabushiki Gaisha Kapukan. Uh, it was started in 1979 by Kenzo Tsujimoto uh, from the Japanese company IRM, and their subsidiary, Japan Capsule Computers, which uh, one assumes that uh, Capcom was a portmanteau of capsule and computers. Uh, Capcom was an early uh, developer of shooting games. Uh, the first arcade release actually was called Vulgus, and that was uh, not only their first game, but also one of the early shooters that came out in uh, 1984. And then December of that same year is when they released 1942. 1942 helped really catapult Capcom to a degree of fame. And uh, as most of you know, it spawned a whole series of games. And it showed that it was something other than just a, an Xevious clone. The, the, the 19XX series, of course, became... Uh, a long-running series of games that uh, Capcom was able to capitalize on and help to kind of establish them in the international market. 
One of the things that makes 1942 so odd is that it's a Japanese developer making a game about World War II, but from the opposite perspective. Your role in the game is to play an American pilot piloting a, uh, a P-38 Lightning to take on Japanese forces uh, over Midway and multiple other locations. Um, now, of course, one thing that I guess is a bit of a downer here is we're talking about the beginning of Capcom's uh, shoot 'em up legacy. Unfortunately, their legacy has kind of been absent the last couple of decades. Uh, the, Capcom has not produced their own shoot 'em up uh, since uh, 19xx, The War Against Destiny. Uh, they have published several uh, because there were a couple of developers that created games using CPS2 hardware, uh, such as Cave, who uh, did Pro Gear No Arashi, and then Rising produced both Dimahu and 1944 The Loop Master, which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is considered canon in the 19xx series. All of that was on CPS2 hardware. And then they also published some shoot-em-ups from other companies on the Dreamcast. Uh, for example, Gigawing by Takumi, or Gunbird 2 by Psycho. Uh, otherwise, they've kind of been absent from the shoot 'em up scene outside of re-releasing their old games and their old catalog via you know, Capcom Classics Collection and things of that nature. Uh, now, 1942 was notable for a, a number of reasons. Um, it introduced some new scoring mechanics, uh, such as the level end uh, percentage grading. Uh, so, based on how many planes and enemies you shoot down, uh, the percentage the percentage of enemies that you shoot down grants you a bonus uh, at the end of the level, and it goes up significantly as you get closer to uh, 100%. It is the first scrolling shooter to expand your firepower by giving you kind of side-mounted mini-planes, uh, known in the game as wingmen. Um, of course, Galaga did the twin ship early on, um, and then you know you see in, in later shooters like Terra Cresta or UFO Robo Dangar uh, that kind of expanded upon that by being able to build up your, your ship and add to it, but 1942 kind of brought that innovation into the, the scene. 1942 is also excessively long. Rather than uh, a handful of kind of infinitely looping stages, like some of the, some other shoot-em-ups uh, where you have just a few levels and then it'll loop over and over, like Gradius, for example, um, 1942 had 32 individual stages. Uh, across the eight different areas, uh, like I mentioned, Midway, Marshall, Atu, uh, Rabal, Leyte, Saipan, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa. And there are four uh, boss encounters along the way. And I think 1942 might be the first, the first shoot 'em up to really have a sort of David and Goliath scenario, where you have this tiny little plane against a giant boss that practically fills the screen. Uh, I believe it's called the Ayako, and um, that is, it's huge compared to the P-38 Lightning that you that you pilot, or, you know, that the plane is, is known in the game also as the Super Ace, but, it, you know, a lot of modern shooters and, and later games 
kind of took that and ran with it and made large boss characters that were way bigger than your small sprite. But I think 1942 was the first game to really bring that innovation in. Um, you know, Xevious before that, of course, had encampments and bases and things that you would fight, but nothing on that scale. It's also uh, the first arcade military-themed shoot-'em-up. As I mentioned, it was uh, made by a Japanese company, but you're flying an American plane taking on Japanese forces, and it is loosely based upon the Battle of Midway in the Pacific Theater of World War II. Uh, it's also, I think, probably the first shoot 'em up with a hitbox that is smaller than the size of the sprite. Um, bullets can go through the wings, and I believe, I think it was you who told me that the propellers were kind of like the, the cutoff. So if a bullet grazes or hits the propellers in the front or in the, the back of the plane, that's where you take a hit. Anything below the propellers. Yeah, and then but the wingtips, you're you're good to go if if uh, you graze an enemy or a bullet there, and so the collision detection um, actually can be fairly forgiving compared to some of the other shoot 'em ups of that uh, time frame. Yeah, one of the things I want to touch upon really quickly in 1942, you're dealing with the entire war as we start off with midway. And they start island hopping all the way to Okinawa, where the game ends. It's an overview of the war. Well, 1943, it's, in my opinion, a much better sequel. just deals with the Battle of Midway, the initial part, and helps give it more of a more focused scope. But we'll get into that just a little bit. Yeah. So, I guess, let's go over some of the game mechanics. You want to set this up for us a little bit? Sure. So, the the game in its original form is vertical, or tate, which means Japanese for stand up, or standing up. It's a 3 by 4 aspect ratio. It, we have two action buttons, one to shoot and one to activate the, the ever-impressive roll maneuver, which moves the P-38, or Super Ace, out of harm's way briefly. And it's generally good to use to escape dangerous situations, although it can also put you in harm's way as you're getting back out of the loop and you immediately ram into somebody. Oh, yeah. That happened to me more often than I care to admit. The power-up icons are unique for this time. Where Power-up icons, in my opinion, were really cemented within the Gradius structure, and it's interesting to see this take. Now, this the Gradius came out in around 1986 so we're dealing with power-up structure before then it's based upon what power-up you're going to get is based upon what level you're in we'll start off but whenever you see some orange planes <clears throat> coming on there you want to shoot them all it's similar in the way that you see with gradius and once you shoot them all you get a pow icon now this pow icon is going to have different colors and depending upon the different colors and upon what stage you're in is what upgrade you're going to get <clears throat> the first one is a shot upgrade. Well, it'll take your P38's twin shot to a quad shot, increasing the horizontal range. This one's pretty useful, and I found myself always thankful when I was able to acquire this update. Now, we have a smart bomb, which takes out all enemies on screen, even the medium and large planes. Now, it doesn't. I didn't get it to be able to take out the large Goliath boss but was definitely effective in taking out some more of the enemy, medium enemies that would try and cut into your lanes and split the screen on you. 
One of my favorite updates is coming up, in which is the wingman. Those add two mini planes, one on each side. Well, for always in the arcade, sometimes on the NES version, they would miss, and you'd only get one due to a uh, programming bug. <clears throat> but they help further increase the horizontal range, and they'll those stick with you until those are died. So if you, in between stages, you're going to be landing on the aircraft carrier, and when the planes just sort of wait for you, and when you take off again, they rejoin you. Now, one of the other powers we have is a bonus point drop, a thousand points each, which helps you get, get those extra lives or extra super aces. We all have the ever helpful no enemy bullets, which prevent small enemy planes from firing at you for a limited time. And we have the extra roll or loop, which adds additional roll to your stock, but it only lasts until the end of the stage, so you better use it or you lose it. Yeah, and, and one of the interesting things about the power-ups is, like you said, I think the, a lot of the structure for power-ups was established in later games, and sort of there was more of a formula where power-ups were more well-defined. In this game, every power-up is literally an icon that says POW, and it's just the different colors uh, color schemes that they use in order to determine which is which. So, for example, in the first stage where you get the quad uh, shot power up, it's sort of a grayish green with a black outline, and so you know that's your your quad shot. Or the the smart bomb is a, a white pow with a red outline. Or the the wingman is kind of a a yellow and green combination. Uh, there's a couple of chances in the game, uh, like five chances, I think, where you can earn an extra life, and that's um, POW in black with a red outline, and and uh, no enemy bullets is kind of a kind of an orange and black, and then your extra loop is a, a yellow and black, um, and then there's if uh, if you get a power up, either the quad shot or the uh, wingman power up and you keep it, you manage to keep it by the time you reach the second set of of uh, orange or red squad fighters and you shoot them down instead of it spawning, at least in the arcade game, instead of it spawning uh, that same power-up again, you just get kind of a red and green icon that just gives you a thousand point bonus. We should also mention the fact that no matter which of these icons you pick up, it's always a thousand points bonus when you pick up a power-up, regardless of which kind. So you definitely want to make sure you grab those. One of the problems that I have with this power-up structure is, for the most part, you're not going to go, oh, look, I want this, or oh, I want this. You do. It, it, there's, it's not really does much to incentivize you to learn the mechanics of the power-up structure. You're just going okay, I see these planes, I'm going to shoot them in and be done with it. That's something that, I, again, I would think Gradius really nailed on right out of the gate with. And, and this is really early, and I can't really knock it against it, but I like the fact that there's variety. It's just you don't really need to pay too much attention to it. Yeah. Um, now, as I mentioned, there, uh, oh, I just mentioned there's it's 1,000 points for every power-up icon collected, no matter which kind. And as I, I also, also said, there's uh, five opportunities in specific stages where the very first um, grouping of the, of the orange and red planes will yield a one-up. And they come on the screen and they leave very quickly, so you have to be 
really fast about shooting them down in order to earn that. There's also uh, stages where you'll see a small green plane kind of fly in, angled from the bottom, either left or right, and it'll turn up and then fly straight up toward the top of the screen. If you shoot that plane down, that will yield what's called the Yashichi. Uh, those of you who have played other Capcom games will know that that is sort of the red and white pinwheel symbol that Capcom has kind of used as a, a bit of a running thing in a lot of their games. And um, uh, for any more modern gamers, you may recognize the, the Yashichi or the red and white pinwheel uh, design as it kind of became the logo for the Umbrella Corporation in the Resident Evil series of games. But if you can shoot down that plane and grab the Yashichi icon, that is a 5,000 point bonus. I believe this was the first game to have the pinwheel icon. Am I correct in that? I believe so. I don't remember seeing it in Volgus, um, but I haven't spent enough time with that game to be able to say that definitively. Uh, but certainly 1942 being the more popular title and of course spawning the series um, certainly popularized that as a thing, which is one of the reasons why you started to see it in so many other Capcom arcade games. And then uh, the other thing is, uh, in the arcade version, you get a, a, an extra life or an extend at 20,000 points, and then 80,000 points, and then every multiple of 80,000 points after that, with the exception of there's a large gap from 480,000 to 720,000 where you don't earn those extends. And then once you reach 960,000 points, that is the last extend that you will earn. Um, so you have to manage your lives carefully across all 32 stages because once you reach that 960K mark and you get that last extra life, that's it. And I don't, um, I don't believe that yeah, stage 27 is the last time that you can earn an extra life through that black and red power uh, power up icon. And so, depending on how you play, that's going to be pretty close to where you're going to cap out point-wise as well. So, you definitely need to uh, be cognizant of that. And there's a lot more that you need to be cognizant of. I mean, is it, this game really bucks the trend of trying to focus on the entire screen and forces you to focus on your plane <clears throat> due in large part due to the random nature or random number generator the enemies on here are especially in the arcade version are not always in the same spot and depending upon how you destroy them sometimes fewer planes follow we have an interesting note from Gollum here if you'd like to start off since addressed to you sure um Gollum and I were conversing on the the forum in the in the thread here about about the game and and I mentioned early on that I felt like the the enemy plane placement and you know how they come into the levels and all that was quite random and Gollum says it's interesting that you note the level design is random it certainly feels random you don't get setups composed of a few different enemies or even setups composed of a few different lines of enemies Instead, you get a squad of one enemy type, only each enemy in the squad is offset a little. 
They are in lines, but instead noisy clouds, as he calls them. Uh, only the red planes bother to fly in an organized pattern, one after the other. So it's more difficult to line yourself up to shoot a, down a squad, and you have a constant need to read each squad as it comes in to assess its particular formation. An interesting comparison is Darius, where the organized elements and noisy elements are more clearly separated. You get neatly lined up squads alongside individually placed turrets or hopping moon men or what have you. In 1942, the squads themselves both have an element of organization and noise as they spawn near each other, but not in a line. That's a really good, a really good assessment, I think, because one of the tips that people in the thread were saying early on is in, in order to, to do well in 1942, one of the things that you should do, and I've heard this about other shooters as well, but in 1942 particularly, is don't pay attention to what's on the screen all over the place. Pay attention to your plane, to your, your avatar on screen, because everything else can exist in the periphery, and you know you can kind of deal with that as it comes on screen, but you really need to watch your plane because you need to be able to judge the distance of other planes as they're coming in, where they're at, what angle they're coming in, are they turning towards you, are they firing bullets, etc. And so by being cognizant of your plane on screen at all times, you can better manage kind of the, f the field around you and um, be better equipped, I guess, to, to handle those incoming threats. Yeah, this, this game in particular is very, very keen, or the, the way to progress in this game is to always be managing your space. The, the game will constantly try and throw ways for to cut off your lanes with the medium-sized enemies on there, or they'll do... The enemy's shots will be leading to where they think your ship is going to turn, where you're most likely to have the super ace turn. It's very much a game about controlling your own lane. It's like you're on a freeway, and you have these cars constantly coming in and off the freeway, and you have to make sure of where you be aware of your own space and where you are. It, very similar to what you'd be looking for at when you first start driving. Yeah, and, and you know that's one of the things that that I found when I was playing the game. It 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 has a it has an uncanny way of humbling you because of the fact that there's so much randomness to it. Um, and like you said, you know they they the planes will fire bullets based on where they think you're going to move. And you know I don't know who programmed that, but um, you know there's a. It, that's a very wild card kind of element in a game like this. And so when you're dealing with random placements of where enemies are going to come in, and it's not totally random, but, you know, they're going to come in from this general area, but is it going to be at the top of the screen or is it going to be part way down? You know, which side's going to come in first? Uh, and then all the, the bullet trajectories and things like that. You know, I, I was playing as I started to kind of learn the the flow and, and sort of kind of get a groove with the game, you know, I, I did a 200,000 plus point run where I was, you know, doing relatively well. Uh, but then I kind of messed up toward the end of that run and, and uh, lost 
several lives in quick succession. Well, then the next time I played, I didn't even hit 20,000 points to get my first extend because I would get sniped by enemy bullets uh, just because of how I was moving back and forth and, you know, kind of down and around. So, yeah, it really has a way of of taking the wind out of your sails when uh, you're trying to do it, especially, at least I felt this way, especially since I was playing very aggressively. I wasn't playing just for survival. I was trying to learn enough about enemy movement and all of that stuff to take out as many planes as possible so I could make sure to maximize that end level percentage bonus. Um, and so some of that is probably my own you know, I'm my own worst enemy in that way. Is you know, I'm I'm not just playing for survival. I'm playing for score. But in this game, since there's so much random to it, you really don't have that much to lose to to do to do it that way because you can't memorize all of the ways that enemies are coming in and the way that they're shooting at you and all of that stuff. It's just too random. So it, it's just it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, the enemies will come from pretty much all sides too. So you're a con. You're really just going in, to mention in dealing with your controlling your lanes and controlling the space around you. <clears throat> you're almost in some ways going around in circles because you've got planes coming from the bottom, you got planes coming from the top, planes coming from the side, and there. And it's not something that you can just simply pattern memorize. Like Gradius, you're going to know that okay, this is going to work this way, this is going to work this way. You just you're not going to get that with 1942. No, definitely not. Now, moving on over to scoring on here, we have, we'll start with the small enemies. Those are the gray planes, those little small gray planes, and they're worth 50 points each, all varieties. We also have the small green planes, which we have a, the single prop ones are worth 30 points. The twin engines are worth 70 points. And then the jets that do a barrel roll, are, I believe, are worth 70 points. Yeah, I wasn't able to nail down exactly how many points those give because by the time those come into the game, you're moving around so much that I wasn't able to kind of keep track of of the point values enough to, to nail that down. Yeah, we have the red power-up plane formation. Those are the red and or more orange in the NES version. I'm not sure how many points those are. I, I didn't have time to calculate that myself, but I do know that you get 500 po bonus points for destroying the entire squad. And a thousand bonus points, as mentioned before, for the power pickup. We moving on. We have the medium planes. These are the planes that will generally come in groups of three, sometimes groups of four, from the bottom. In the NES version, at least initially, they're more akin to minivans, try slow-moving minivans, trying to break up your lane as you maneuver around them. You get a hundred points for each time you shoot one of those and 1,000 to 1,500 points for destroying them. Yeah, and that, that's an element that I find very interesting in the game as far as the scoring is concerned, that you're awarded points just for connecting shots with them, and then you get the additional bonus for destruction. It's kind of a neat, uh, a neat feature and something that, again, is kind of forward-thinking in a way. It really adds... Uh, an, an interesting scoring element because if things are so frenetic that you can't get to where you can destroy one of those before it leaves the screen, at least if you can fire off a half dozen shots, you're still scoring points off of them. 
Yeah, it's pretty interesting on there. We have moving on to the large planes. These are the planes that will try and hit you with their tail gun. Not the big big boss Akio, but these are big enough where they'll stay around for a while. instead of move, trying to move off the taking a pot shot at you and later stages moving off the screen. These ones will stick around and try and shoot you from the tail gun. These are 100 points for each shot registered or each registered hit and 2,000 points for destroying the first one. Each successive plane yields an additional 500 points beyond the previous amount up to a maximum of 9,000 points. These ones <clears throat> I didn't have too many problems destroying. I had uh, actually more problems with the medium planes that were always trying to break up the lanes. What was your take on this? Yeah, I'm the same way. Um, generally, the, the spread of three, uh, at least early on, is easy to deal with. Now, as you go along further in the game, that spread of three bullets becomes a spread of five, at least in the arcade version. In the NES, I think it remains three, and uh, I would assume in some of the other lesser ports, it's, it's also three the whole time. Um, one thing that we should mention is that that up to a max of 9,000, that's for each successive plane that you destroy without dying. Um, so as soon as you, as soon as your, your plane gets shot down, then the next one that you do, the next one of the large planes that you shoot down goes back to the 2,000 point value. So that multiplier is only active until, uh, as long as you're alive. As long as the run, random number generator blesses you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, move on to the last enemy in here in the arcade version, and definitely one of the scariest enemies in the game, is the Akio. And that appears in stages 26, 18, 20, and 2. The first one is worth, or the initial boss is worth uh, 20,000 points, and each successive boss encounter is worth 10,000 more. So, to give me an idea, the final boss is worth 50,000 points. Right. And, and Go ahead. I was going to say, the, uh, the one thing that we, that we should have mentioned earlier and that we didn't is that, unlike most shoot-em-up games, you mentioned you know it appears in 26, 18, 20, and 2. This game actually counts down the stages instead of counting up. Uh, and so, the way that they word it when you, when you start a level is last... You know, when you start the first level, it says last 32 stages. <laughs> I almost think of it as like they're taunting you or they're they're challenging you. Last 32 stages, you know. That's how long you need to last. <laughs> um, and so instead of stage one, stage two, stage three, you start at stage 32 in midway, and then you finally start, uh, end in on stage one in Okinawa. Yeah, it's it's almost this game with its third two stages is something that's not going to be undertaken in a short amount of time. It's almost like a war a war of attrition on your in some cases upon your te attention span. But it, it's I find my playthroughs were taking probably around an hour hour thirty mark. Yeah, I was looking at uh, at howlongtobeat.com to see you know what they were rating the game as and I want to say for the arcade version or maybe the NES port I don't remember specifically but it was it was something like a solid hour and a half for the game and that's pretty long for a shoot 'em up uh, especially now where you have 
you know, shoot 'em ups, things like cave shoot 'em ups, where there are only five or six stages. Now, of course, there are two loops, but um, a lot of times you can do those five stages in 20, 25 minutes. So your total play time, if you're good enough to to make it through to the second loop, is probably going to be somewhere between 20 minutes and 40, 45 minutes or something like that. But this game, you really have to be dedicated to see it through to the end. Uh, speaking of the end, the end level bonus for roll loops left in stock is 1,000 points each, which for most of the time I did have a pretty high stock of loops at least until probably about, oh, I would say about tw stage 25 is when I really started to have use them maybe a little bit less than that, maybe like 22. When did you start having to really engage with the looping? You know, I didn't, uh, and it's not because I'm, I'm so good. I'm not. Um, it's more because, A, I would forget to use them, and B, when I would remember to use them, uh, it was usually in that split second where my plane was already being rammed into by a medium or large size plane from behind, or uh, I was getting myself into the middle of a swarm and um, thought, maybe I'll use the roll to get out of this, but I didn't hit the button fast enough. So for me, I, I ended up with a roll bonus, a full roll bonus at the end of almost every stage of almost every playthrough that I did because... Uh, yeah, either I just wouldn't execute it fast enough, or I would forget to use it. And then I kind of reached a point where uh, mentally I was sort of like, well, I'm not using these things, and I'm progressing, and I'm doing you know what I need to do, and I like getting that 3,000 point bonus at the end of every level, because that gets me that much closer to the additional extend, so I'm just going to roll with that. Pun intended. Jeez, yeah, yeah. The lightning from 1943 is just so much more useful, and oh yeah, it, it's one of those th things that is definitely um, another risk reward factor. As you get further down into from starting down, let's say in the teens on there, it almost becomes a necessity, and it's something that I, when I was playing the arcade version, I encountered the first. Akio that I really had to use that to get anywhere in, in the, the closest I got to ever destroying the, that bo the first boss or the first Akio in the arcade version was thanks to the loops. But you also have the problem with the loops as you're looping back around you could just smash into a plane that decides to veer left and kamikaze into you. Yeah. There. So at the end, at the end of each stage as we mentioned before you're giving a percentage that breaks down there. Can you go through the breakdown real quick? Sure. Um, so if you shoot down less than 50% of any planes, you get nothing, um, as you should, because that means that you're not being very aggressive. Uh, if you're between 50 and 59% of shot down planes, you get a 1,000-point bonus. Between 60 and 69%, you get a 2,000-point bonus. Uh, 70 to 79 percent is 3,000, 80 to 84 percent is 4,000, 85 to 89 is 5,000, 90 to 94 is 10,000, uh, 95 to 99 is 20,000, and at 100 percent you get 50,000 points. And of course that is the 
that is the goal, is to try and reach that elusive 100-point um, shot-down percentage. I want to say that in my playthroughs, at least in the arcade version, I probably only accomplished that once, maybe twice. Uh, on the NES version, I probably did that uh, a small handful of times, but wow, in the arcade version, it's really difficult. Uh, what, what did you find with that? Oh, on the arcade, definitely, with the random number generator, and there's always like a plane or two that snuck on by. It was, even even with the auto-fire that's given in the Saturn and uh, PlayStation port, it still maintains it extremely hard, and I, I believe it was Square who mentioned that in the forums. Yeah, he said something to the effect that uh, that the in the arcade release, at least, that 100% bonus is incredibly difficult to achieve. And he, I think he also said that he was only able to achieve it once. And, of course, he w scored well over a million points in a couple of his playthroughs. And so that's saying something. A lot better than I did, that's for certain. Uh, speaking of point scoring on there, we have a tip from Crabmaster2000 who points out if you die on the NES version, if you die during a boss battle, you will respawn right at, at that fight. After killing the boss planner, which in this case is the Akio again, the level is immediately over, so you get the 100% enemy kill bonus. It's possible to exploit this for anyone going for a high score. Now, what's, this sort of reminds me of the going back to Raiden 5, where if you accidentally died on the boss and it ended, they said, hey, you did a great job, 100%, and then gave you a huge bonus for it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how those things work. Yeah, the other thing he mentions is that uh, for some reason in the NES version, you get a 100,000 point bonus for the 100% level completion. Um, and so, in terms of exploiting that uh, um, situation with the boss, where you die right before the boss, and then kill the boss, and then get the 100,000 points, that is definitely worth doing if you have the extra lives to spare, so that you can boost your score. Speaking of scores, just looking up the high scores that were posted per version, uh, Square Air handily took away the... Uh, arcade hide score, uh, high score by playing the game in MAME um, for a, I guess, relatively authentic uh, experience. He scored 1,567,190 points, um, which was pretty outstanding. He said he didn't clear the game, but he got close, and so he must have been very aggressive in order to reach that score. Uh, on the PSP version that came with the Capcom Classics Collection uh, Reloaded, I believe, uh, Crabmaster 2000 had uh, 261,580 points. I messed around with the, the PSP version a little bit. I don't remember where I ended up. It was somewhere close to that. And, of course, on the Sega Saturn, uh, I was playing along and um, was able to reach 291,310 points. Couldn't quite break the 300k mark. I, I was hoping to, kind of my personal goal that I was hoping to do was to break 500k and to at least see the halfway point in the game, but I was uh, not successful in that endeavor. Uh, Crabmaster2000 also had the high score on the NES version, with 1,433,550 points. 
Uh, but there were also uh, a couple of the others of us who cleared the NES version and at least got a 1cc, that being also Easy Racer and myself. And then we had one participant playing the Commodore 64 version, which was Duke Togo, um, since he's recently uh, restored a C64. And um, the score that he posted there was 44,750 points. It's quite impressive to be playing that C64 version. That's pretty comparable as far as the difficulty with the arcade version. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't have a chance to try it myself, but I watched some video, and uh, it's it's interesting. Um, now, what? Speaking of interesting, what did you think of the graphics on there? Did you think that they were utilitarian? There, do you think that it was a little bit more militaristic with the blues and the grays on there? Let's talk about the arcade arcade board now. The graphics look. What was your opinion? Um, in general, I, I liked the graphics. I thought the plane designs were, were nice and reasonably detailed for their vintage. I enjoyed the explosions. They're not impressive by any means, but they have a nice sort of semi-cartoon explosion kind of look to them. Uh, you know, think about uh, an explosion that you might see in the Transformers or something like that from the early 80s and uh, translate that to early pixel art graphics, and you have something similar to that on a smaller scale. But yeah, I, I think overall the graphics were good. You know, if you compare it to Volgus, which came out earlier that year and, and was Capcom's first shoot 'em up, it's definitely more colorful because Volgus was a lot of grays and um, browns and black and red, and it's all very dark and drab. But 1942 mixes things up a little bit because, of course, you got the blue water, and then you also have a lot of greens with uh, flying over islands and things like that, lots of trees. You have some lighter browns because you're flying over um, beach areas and things like that. Plus, you've got the, the bright green plains. You've got the, the red power-up squads. You've got the gray plains. And so it's not a ton of color, but it's a lot more bright and interesting to look at, I would say, than Volgus. It's also... It, I, I think the, the color scheme works well for the game because of the military theme. If you compare it to something like Xevious, Xevious is bright and colorful, but it's bright and colorful to the point where it's almost a little bit gaudy. But then there's a contrast in Xevious where there's a lot of gray and stuff like that for, you know, the the ground turrets and cannons and things like that, and then the, the encampments and bases at the end of the levels that you have to fight. And so you kind of have this contrast between the the bright, really bright blue water or green grass and things like that that you're flying over um, with all this kind of drab gray. Whereas 1942, I think, and if you'll allow me to pun, it brings it down to earth, so to speak, by having a slightly more muted color scheme you know, there's still bright blue and bright green and things like that, but it's not quite as harsh as something like Xevious. So I think overall it worked pretty well in the uh, arcade original. Yeah, I really appreciate the earth tones along with the military theme worked really well. And you're not giving them like all of a sudden you don't see this pink plane barreling towards you trying to take you down or this po polka dot plane or something, something silly like that. It's... 
it stays real realistic and sort of gives you that that empowerment and that look of it's it's me against the entire Japanese ar- army on here and it looks as realistic as you would get in 1984. Sure. It does a good job, at least in the arcade original, of, of, of keeping, for the most part, everything dis- distinct, and you can identify what is what. As soon as those orange planes come on the screen, you okay, these are special, these are different from the other ones. And it really does a pretty good job with the sprite work in helping you identify what things are and not to get confused or have the... The bullets match in with the, some of the scenery or some of the backgrounds, and all of a sudden you wonder where the why the heck your plane was destroyed. Yeah, I, I think when you start to get up in levels a ways, and there's a lot of scenery, bullets can get lost in the shuffle there. But the way that the bullets are colored, you know, the color scheme that's used against a lot of the kind of green trees and shrubbery kind of motif that a lot of the levels have in the islands that you're flying over there's still enough definition there that as i said before if you're if you're paying attention to your plane and kind of looking at the periphery and the space around you you can see that stuff as it's coming in and so you still have you should still be able to make out bullets and and things enough to be able to have a chance at avoiding them yes definitely in the arcade version however the nes version that was a different story i had terrible times trying to figure out where the bullets were coming from as we're flying over the islands because of, of the limited color palette of the NES and the, well, the, the fact it was a Micronic support, but we'll discuss that a little bit later on. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Easy Racer uh, made mention that he said the, the most of the backgrounds didn't bother him too much, but the backgrounds from level 4 to the end just seemed sadistic. And uh, I noticed this, too, when I played through the NES version and got my clear, is, yeah, once you reach Okinawa and you're, you're playing those last four levels, stages four through one, uh, you start to see, you actually get to ports and you see buildings and things like that, and there's, it's so busy. The, the look of it is so busy and there's so much going on there that, yeah, the bullets start to become way harder to make out and uh, there's so much visual information for you to process that it becomes uh, a lot more a lot more work <laughs> speaking of going from visual overload to uh, simplistic here what did you think of the music uh music <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in all seriousness you know the the little ditty that plays when you start a level or when you restart a, a, like like a new level after a checkpoint or the little end theme when you when you die and you get game over those are nice the sound that plays during the course of a stage typically i wouldn't classify it as music it's more like military cadence uh, it's it's just a, a progressive drum beat that sounds like a you know a drum line with snare drums, but they're not particularly punchy. And then you get this sort of whistling sound that sounds like a like a drill instructor uh, just kind of whistling at you in in time, trying to get you to march or whatever it is. And and so it's really very basic. It doesn't add much other than kind of 
what's the word I'm looking for? Other than, I guess, helping to kind of sell the whole military theme, but it doesn't really enhance the experience necessarily. It, it just kind of is background noise. Uh, speaking of background noise on there, I'm not sure if, it, if you'll say this, but I definitely felt that the NES version diluted it even more to the point where it sounded like Morse code. Yeah, uh, the NES version, wow. We'll have to get into that for sure. Yeah, I mean, it was just compared to the arcade version when dealing with the sound and the and the music, it was good enough, but it was just r- really there. I believe that that nowadays we'd use the term or close to phoned in, but it's just not not much better than you could prob- probably get by just uh, playing a couple instruments in GarageBand, throwing it together, and then calling it good. Yeah. Well, we should probably get into some of the different ports and uh, versions of the game uh, beyond just the arcade. This game was actually ported to a whole bunch of microcomputers back in the day, which was to be expected. Um, the ZX Spectrum saw a port, and uh, I didn't get a pl- I did get, did not get to play it, but I watched some uh, footage on YouTube and. It was actually better than I expected it to be. It looked like it moved relatively smooth. Um, of course, the color palette on the Spectrum is very limited, similar to kind of early 80s IBM PCs and DOS computers with CGA graphics, you know, four shades and, and that sort of thing. I, I don't know how many colors the Spectrum is limited to, but it's very basic and very scaled down. No music other than like a little ditty at the title screen, but it looked like it actually played relatively decent. Contrasting that is the CPC Amstrad version, which had a little bit more music in it. Uh, actually, the the you know the title a title screen theme and a little bit of a, a theme at the beginning of the game, kind of like in the arcade when you start a level. Uh, but the scrolling is incredibly choppy, and it just looked like it it's a pretty garbage uh, port of the game uh, or, you know, version of the game. I, I want to say both of those were done by Elite, and I think that's a, I think it's a British-based company. I don't remember for sure, but I believe they did both of those versions, and um, I don't know if there are any other um, British microcomputers or European microcomputers. I don't know if there was a version on the BBC Micro. There was a version on the MSX, uh, which of course came out in Japan and at some level in Europe. Uh, it looks like it was better than either the Spectrum or CPC ports. Uh, it had decent sound from the YouTube video that I watched, and uh, you know, relatively typical graphics and scrolling for the MSX. See, the scrolling on the MSX, at least the MSX One and most of those games, always had a little bit of a stuttery feel to it, but Otherwise, the game looked like it played reasonably well. Yeah, the MSX was definitely not known for its scrolling capabilities. Just looking at the MSX port of Contra on how you had to move in between each individual screen or even look at uh, Vampire Killer, the Castlevania game on there, as it has you moving in between each individual screen, you wouldn't really see scrolling as a big deal until the NES Right. And even a more impressive shoot 'em up on that system like Space Manbo still has relatively choppy scrolling. 
The Commodore 64 version uh, is kind of interesting um, because instead of a lot of the random elements of the arcade version and some of the other ports, the enemy placement is totally static. It's always the same every time you play. But the bullet trajectories and when they fire, that's randomized. Duke Togo played that version, of course, as we mentioned, and he said it was quite difficult. One thing I noticed when I was watching video of it on YouTube is the the red squadrons come in and you can shoot them down, but those aren't the ones that yield the power-ups. You just get a power-up from a random plane flying onto the screen. And the interesting thing was, instead of your twin shot becoming a quad shot, the it, it did this thing where it just became a, a triple shot. And so it just sort of spread your twin shot out a little bit and then created another shot that fired right up the middle uh, instead of the quad shot when you got that power up. And so it was kind of an interesting an interesting approach. Now, as to be expected with the Commodore 64, uh, it had the best music of any of the other versions outside of the arcade, and possibly even the best sound, just because of what uh, a lot of programmers were able to do with uh, the SID chip, you know, the sound hardware within the C64. And so I actually quite liked the the music and uh, the sound of the C64 version. Yeah, it reminded me a lot more of the, ni- the sound we get out of 1943, a little bit more of an upbeat let's go instead of just uh, whistles and drums whistles and drums and whistles and drums yeah Duke Togo mentioned uh, he says the enemy patterns are always the same but the bullets are unpredictable I'm sure that having the same patterns every time would be easy but the planes are set up to put you into some tricky positions or to push you into other oncoming enemies also you can die from running into a plane as it explodes which has killed me quite a few times. And I thought that was interesting because I've seen that in, in some other games where uh, an enemy explosion or a shrapnel kind of a thing can kill you. I want to say in 1943 even, when you take on some of the big boats and you destroy kind of the center portion or whatever, the uh, you know the command deck or what have you, that the sometimes... Core. Yeah, the core. Yeah, shoot the core. Uh, that... When you destroy that, it'll give off a little bit of shrapnel, and I think if you're in too close, that can destroy you. So it's interesting that that element was in the C64 version. Now we move on to the uh, next port, the NES port, which has haunted many a childhood. Yes. So the, the port was done by a company called Micronics, and they handled a number of conversions of early Capcom games. And it's interesting when you look at a lot of the early Capcom releases on the NES and how shoddy some of these ports were, uh, or at least shoddy is, is probably a good word to use, but certainly unpolished would be another way to put it. Uh, you know, games like 1942 or um, what was another one that they did? They did Ghosts and Goblins. Ghosts and Goblins. They, I, I want to say maybe they handled the Port of Trojan and a yeah, couple of the other early very, games. Sorry, it has a very much like college project type vibe to these ports. Yeah. Uh, and so 
for whatever reason, Capcom subcontracted those ports for the, the Famicom, and as a result, a lot of those early games, including 1942, suffered because of it. Yeah, 1942 and some of these other ones that were ported over is most likely done because at this point in time, it's only been a year into the Famicom's launch, right? The Famicom debuted in 1983, and Capcom was mainly a arcade-focused company, and it was a very small company at this point in time, so it's likely they didn't have the resources. And keep in mind that Nintendo, even with Donkey Kong, they outsourced some of the development for that. So it was probably just seen as something that was normally accepted and would help them get off feet. Well, in the NES wasn't seen really as something that was going to be a viable market. The arcade was where it was at at this point in time. Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, Jeremy Parrish uh, from Retronauts apparently joked at one point that it's called 1942 because that's the year it was programmed. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a, a little bit um, obviously tongue-in-cheek or very tongue-in-cheek. But, um, but, yeah, you know, compared to even some of Nintendo's early efforts, it, it definitely lacks a lot of polish. Um, but it was Capcom's first uh, NES game. Uh, another, another statement that Jeremy Parrish made is, is, of course, you'd have to be comatose not to know, not to have noticed what happened with the game's soundtrack when it was ported, which of course you mentioned earlier, you know, having the that military cadence kind of music turned from what we heard in the arcade to effectively Morse code with uh, tinny little drum beats. Yeah, you wouldn't be surprised if it really was Morse code and translated to help me. <laughs> yeah. The other, the other thing that uh, I noticed in the game is that just in general the sound is dodgy. When you destroy the medium and the large planes, their explosion sounds like the I'll just say it the fart noises that you would hear on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred when you would have enemies exploding and in, in some of the games on that, you know, just this kind of you know almost barf noise kind of a thing and. It's really, it's funny, but it's also a little bit distracting because of how bad it is. Yeah, everything with with the NES port and Micronics port of 1942 lacks oomph to it. It's just very lackluster. It definitely gets the job done, but it's sort of like the car that drives a race and then falls apart right after crossing the finish line. Yeah, yeah, the... Everything is is very stuttery, and uh, the color choices are very drab. You know, people complain about early NES games or early Sega Genesis games not being very colorful or or looking kind of drab. This game is incredibly drab, at least on the NES. And yeah, it, it's just not pleasant to look at in any way. I mean, I would rather play Gradient or play. I would rather play Galaga and have half the colors on screen, but have it be more vi vibrant and bright and interesting to look at amongst space than the dull blue dither pattern of the water or, you know, the drab, poorly rendered pattern of, you know, trees and stuff like that on the islands. 
Yeah, it really makes it hard. As we mentioned earlier in the NES port, it really makes it hard to see as you're flying over the islands where the planes and the shots are coming from. Because the white that's chosen for the for the Super Ace palette or the planes palette works well when you're over water. But as soon as you start getting to some of these more earthy tones on there, it makes it incredibly hard to see where things are. Yeah. Uh, the game is buggy. You know, sometimes you'll hear the shot sound when you press the button, but you don't see it. And, and I don't know if that's because it doesn't actually shoot or if it's just flickering real bad. There's tons of flicker. There's a lot of slowdown, especially late in the game. Of course, the rather than trying to do the kind of black bar on the side with all your stats to k- keep the aspect ratio more like the arcade, it's a full 4x3. And so e- Easy Racer mentioned to me that that, of course, makes the game easier to play because you have more screen real estate to work with. But I don't know. It, do- it doesn't really add anything to the game other than that. Another thing that I noticed is there were times, like you said earlier, when you would get the wingmen and as they'd be flying on the screen, one of them would collide with an enemy and be gone. And so you'd end up with only one. Uh, Other times, I would notice that I'd be flying along and shooting enemies. And let's say I'd be somewhere on the left side of the screen toward the bottom and I'd have my wingman, and I'd be taking out enemy planes. Over on the right side of the screen, you'd have one of those green planes that would kind of come in from the bottom and then start flying to the top that you could shoot down for the Yashichi. And inexplicably, as soon as that plane would get all the way on screen and turn to make its upward uh, ascent, it would just randomly explode. And so I wouldn't even have the opportunity to move over to the other side of the screen and shoot it down to get the bonus points, it would just explode. And I I don't understand that. Um, but again, it just kind of goes back to the whole product being very unpolished and, and downright shoddy in some ways. Yeah, the one of the things that I did appreciate, going back to Easy Racer's comment on there, is that, that it was when the arcade version, even though it... You could, in theory, move from top to bottom. There there was an invisible wall that you hit at the top. You'd have to wait for it to scroll. The NES port doesn't have that. It gives you pretty much freedom to go with it everywhere. And, and due to that, it makes it a little bit easier than the arcade. Of course, the, the limitations of the NES make and well, the game's programming, or the port's programming, make the game a lot easier on the NES true. Crabmaster2000 made mention, he says he he said uh, because he played primarily the NES version early in the month, he says I like shooters with simple power-up systems like this. I get it right away and I don't have to build back up too far if I die and lose them. Also, your ship is nearly as powerful with the default setup as it was with the fully powered shot. The big bomber ships that come in from behind get destroyed at the same point on the map regardless of how powered up I am. Seems almost like the power-up just increases the spread of your shot and not the actual damage output. The first time I got to the two little planes on my side, it freaked me out and I drove into an enemy. I was panicking to avoid the ships that were spinning violently towards me. The first boss is alright, but then it's just the same thing every time. A little variety would have been nice. 
Yeah, the the Ieco is something that is intimidating in the arcade version, but in the NES version, I just went under the wing and went to the right, went under the wing and was able to destroy it pretty quickly. I know that you had mentioned you went to the left and went under the wing. Either strategy is valid, but it makes a boss trivial. Yeah, I pretty much I pretty much went to the left bottom bottom left corner and you just kind of move slightly to the right or left or up or down to avoid the bullet spread that comes out from the tail gun and if you're if you're using auto fire or you're pressing the button fast and getting out as many shots as the game will allow you to you'll be able to take that down within a few seconds really i mean you know 15 20 seconds and he's done and one of those things that would be very frustrating if you didn't know the trick, but as soon as you know the trick, it makes it trivial. Yeah. Uh, Newpile commented, he says, One thing I noticed, and I'm going to keep bringing up 1943, is the popcorn planes don't show you if they have a bullet to fire or not. In 1943, if a little plane has a bullet to fire, and they only ever have one shot at most... They're actually carrying it on the plane until it's shot. When they shoot, it leaves the plane so you can see, you can quickly see which ones can still fire or not. 1942 doesn't do that. Um, it's been a while since I played 1943. That's a detail I didn't notice or hadn't noticed previously. And I don't know if that's just the NES version or if that carries into the arcade version as well but uh yeah 1942 really there's no way to tell that they're going to fire or when they're going to fire as soon as the bullet comes on the screen that's your indication to uh to move <laughs> yeah the in regards to the arcade version i didn't play it for just a little bit on the ps1 port and i didn't see that so it must be just with the nes port right the uh game boy color version was developed by Digital Eclipse and then, of course, published by Capcom. It's a little bit slicker presentation-wise than the NES version, for sure. The color scheme and selection is better. It's brighter. Of course, it doesn't look quite as bright on the original Game Boy Color screen, but uh, I, I think the overall look is better. It, it's certainly smoother. You get a password after, I think, every four stages... And you can even print out that and your score using the Game Boy printer. So that's kind of a nice touch that they included that functionality. The music is possibly the worst version uh, because the beeps are even more high-pitched. And I noticed that. I, I kind of tried it out a little bit. And wow, it's pretty ear-piercing. The drum sound is also missing, and so... All you get is the, the whistling and the, the little bit of music in between levels, uh, thankfully. But uh, you do hear your, your shots as you're firing them from the P-38. It's very zoomed in, uh, so you don't have a lot of room to maneuver. It's kind of an inter interesting middle ground because the, the Game Boy screen or the Game Boy Color screen is it's not perfectly square, but it's real close, so it doesn't give you a 4x3 ratio of a standard deaf television, nor does it give you a 3x4 ratio of a vertically oriented or Tate-style arcade uh, cabinet screen. So it's more of a square, and so any room that you get back on something like the NES version where you get 
get to move around more or you know that that tall kind of screen area where you have a narrow lane so to speak in the arcade version you're kind of in a middle ground on the Game Boy Color port but it's also because everything is zoomed in you really don't have that much room to maneuver that said it's not that difficult um, when I was messing around with it, my second time playing it, I had scored over 500,000 points on a single credit. So you don't, they don't fire as many bullets, and uh, depending on how you do it, you know, you, you probably won't get as high a percentage of, getting, of, of shooting the enemies down. But uh, it really is a, a relatively easy port of the game, all things considered. Also... The planes that come in from the side that shoot up to the top, that you shoot down to get the Yashichi, those things move really fast. And so if you're not close to where they're going to be, or at least kind of toward the center of the screen, you're not going to have time to move over and shoot those things down. Um, so you really, you really have to watch for those. As far as the Capcom Generations release, that was in Japan only for both the PlayStation and the Saturn. The Saturn version is what I spent most of my time on during the course of the month uh, until toward the end when I focused on the NES version for a little bit. But uh, I'm not going to say they're arcade perfect, but they're awful close, if not arcade perfect uh, for all intents and purposes. Both of those collections also include 1943 and 1943 Kai. And uh, one interesting thing that I found is that they have two levels of auto fire. Um, so on the Saturn port specifically, I can speak to that. The left trigger gave you kind of a medium auto fire where it would have a little bit of a delay between each round that it fires. And the right trigger gives you a much more of a rapid fire kind of situation. And so what I found is I would hold the, the pad and sort of hold down the left trigger as I was swinging back and forth and, uh, you know, moving my plane around as I was using that to uh, take out enemy planes. In the beginning of a stage where you get bombarded with small groupings of the gray planes, a lot of times I would use the right trigger rapid fire to quickly take out small clusters of them. And then when the medium or large size planes would come on screen, I would try to run right up to them and point blank them with a right trigger using that more rapid fire auto and try to take those out very quickly so that I could dispatch them and then go back to a more medium paced auto fire to kind of have a, I would say, a relatively steady stream of auto-fire going on. What, did you notice kind of a similar thing with the PlayStation version? Yeah, the PlayStation version was almost identical to the Saturn version. The only difference that you're going to see between those is that that with the version 1, Capcom Generations Volume 1 and Volume 5, Volume 1 being the 19XX or 1942 and 1943, it's going to be a little bit lower resolution or, but it's going to be a better resolution because we all know that the Saturn has a minimum resolution that can support, which led to weird things such as the Castle, uh, Castlevania or Dra Akimaju Dracula um, port of Symphony of the Night. Some of the, the looks stretched because of the minimum resolution of the Saturn. So it's going to be a little bit more arcade perfect on the PlayStation version, 
but both versions are fine and both versions are identical. You get the low auto fire and the high auto fire and both include the same number of games and play functionally identical. Yeah, one, a couple of the nice touches that I that I liked from the Capcom Generations version was in order to replicate that 4x3 aspect ratio, you get a black bar down the right side of the screen which has your high score and your roll counter and all that. But then also there's a kind of a, I won't say low res, but you know, a, a pixel version of what is effectively a 1942 arcade poster uh, there kind of toward the bottom that you can see, which is kind of a nice touch. Um, it's something that you would probably see in, in collections nowadays where you would have art galleries and things like that. You would see a, a high-res scan of a poster, that kind of a thing that you could move around the screen or blow up or that kind of a thing. And So it's kind of a neat to see it even back then, Capcom including something like that. Yeah, it was definitely one of those things that was done with care. The other nice thing that I, I thought was interesting was in the game when you when you have your high score table, and we didn't mention this before, but you have to score, I think, at least a minimum of 40,000 points to get on the board because the game only, only allows you to enter your name if you get a top five score. And then it only, I think it records 15 scores total, but... Uh, the name that it registers or that you see on the high scoreboard in the in the Capcom Generations version, the names that appear for the different levels of score are other Capcom arcade games. So you have Volgus X-Xs, which came out, I think, the, the following year in 85, after 1942. Uh, Sun Sun, uh, he, uh, Higemaru, I think from Pirate Ship Higemaru, and... and uh, you know, a couple of other games were used as names for the high score table. So it's kind of an interesting and neat touch there, you know, looking back that they included some of that. Yeah, I definitely agree. I noticed that when I had to erase Volgus from the top score list. is the same thing on the uh, PlayStation version as on the Saturn there. Yeah. In the subsequent generation, uh, Capcom put out the Capcom Classics Collections, and uh, there's Volume 1 and Volume 2 for the PlayStation and the original Xbox, or excuse me, PlayStation 2 and original Xbox. And then uh, the PSP had two collections, uh, Capcom Col Classics Collection Reloaded and Capcom Classics Collection Remixed. Now the remixed ver or the reloaded version, excuse me, is the one that's got 1942 on it. And one of the cool things about the PSP version is that it gives you that ability to rotate your system and play it in Itate mode because the PSP screen is is a little bit wider, not quite a, a 16 by 9 screen size, but it's close. And so you can rotate that. And the, the interesting thing is it gives you multiple. Uh, screen options. You can play in original resolution, which makes it very small on that screen. You can do uh, what's called full, where it stretches it to the width of the screen, and then you get kind of a letterboxing effect on the top and bottom. Or a stretch mode, which literally fills the whole screen, which does not look good, and I do not recommend using that. But I was playing on, on that for a little bit and, and enjoying that. Unfortunately, the PSP version in the Classics Collection only has one level of auto-fire, unlike the 
PlayStation and Saturn uh, Capcom Generations ports. So a little bit of a half step back, half step back there. I'm not sure why Capcom elected to do that. I want to mention briefly to a couple of related games. Um, there's 1942 Joint Strike, which came out on uh, PS3 and I believe also the Xbox 360. Um, that was just in their uh, respective digital marketplaces. It's more of a reimagining of 1942 with some various accoutrements from 1943 and after that were added to the game. Um, so it's more of, you know, take that original game and let's remake it, but, you know, kind of fancy it up. Uh, so it's not really strictly a... a um, an updated version of the game. It's it's more of, like I say, a reimagining. Uh, and then there's also an iOS version of 1942 called 1942 Mobile, but apparently it's old, and there the, the listing for the game says that it doesn't work on iOS 11. Well, now, as of this recording, iOS 12 has been out for over a month now, and so it probably hasn't been updated in a while, and uh, there are some fairly negative reviews of it, so it's not something I would recommend. There are some other, if you like shmups on the go, there are definitely a lot of other options that are probably far superior to that. So I guess looking at all of all of this and all of this stuff that we've discussed, what would you consider to be your general impressions of the game? You know, when I first tried out 1942, I tried it out via the NES port or the Micronics port, and I liked it. It was something that I kept trying going back to, but it felt like it, I was hitting an impenetrable wall. It was something that just seemed like, wow, these games are hard, and it's just the way it is. But going back to it now, it's like, okay, the NES port is pretty simple compared to what it, what I faced before. Now, the arcade version, on the other hand, that may be close to as impenetrable as I'll get. But <laughs> it, it, it's I like it. It's great for what it is in its place and time. But it's been surpassed on many, many, many games in the 19XX series. It, it's a great template. It did a lot of things right. It, it did a lot of things first. But it's one of those things that, by today's standards... Unless you add something to it, it's frustrating and probably not worth revis revisiting. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm going to echo a lot of that. Uh, um, I'll take a half step back and say that I don't, I wouldn't say it's not worth revisiting, but I would say that for for the amount of time that we've dedicated to the game, you know, doing this in the format we're doing, where we take a whole month and we dedicate to it, that's a lot of time to spend on a game like this that has so much random so much randomness to it. Uh, I think the fact that there are multiple versions to explore makes it easier and certainly I felt very good about going into the NES version and within about a week week and a half you know in that span of time being able to go from memories of playing the NES game a decade earlier or so and thinking, wow, this is really hard, I'll never beat this, to getting a 1cc and scoring over a million points uh, and being very happy about that and uh, really feeling like I had accomplished something. 
So yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's it's not worth revisiting. What I will say is, it's a slog. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier that it's like an hour and a half journey through the game, and if you're going to dedicate the time to do it, you need to be prepared for that. The NES version, I will say, is probably worth playing through, because if you can learn the general flow of the game and kind of get past some of the random elements of it, it's not super difficult to reach that point. So, yeah, if you've got a few nights to dedicate to it and sit down and play for a couple of hours uh, every night or on a weekend or whatever, especially if you're someone who's highly skilled at these kinds of games, like Crab Master or, or uh, some of the other, you know, high-skill shoot-em-up players, this is one that you, especially the NES version, I think you can knock off your list pretty quickly and, uh, you know, put on your 1cc list just to say, hey, yeah, I did this. But as far as the arcade version, I don't know that I could recommend anybody spend or take the time to make that kind of accomplishment happen unless either you really enjoy the, the retro aesthetic and the retro appeal of it or you just really have an appreciation for the early games in the genre. You know, I think both of us have, have mentioned multiple times, you know, during this this uh, recording session here that 1943 is vastly superior. And I think almost everyone who has played 1942 and 1943 would echo that sentiment. Yeah, and to clarify, I'm not saying that you, there isn't fun to be had here. I certainly did have fun on here but the as far as maximizing the amount of it of fun that you can get from your investment or what you put into it i would definitely go with the nes version or maybe the P the playstation or saturn port for the capcom classic classics collection but if you're playing the the random chance or the random number generator in their k version just kills it because it's you'd feel almost it doesn't turn in it's not a test of skill. You can't get better by learning patterns on there. It could just, it's just, it's akin to playing scratch-offs. Yes, there's some joy that you get there, but most of the time you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, I found that my progression in the game reached a plateau, and rarely did I ever see past 250,000 points. Again, some of that is my own limitations as a player. Some of that is my tendency toward playing aggressively and trying to score as high as I could and, and thinking less about playing for survival and more just trying to hone my skill in general. But yeah, the randomness of it overall really does make it a much more difficult game to target uh, in terms of, of trying to play all the way through it. And its length is uh, is a huge factor in that. Yeah. Speaking of thoughts and length on here, we've got a comment from Square Air who says it's 70 minutes long. It's a behemoth. I should note that I did also occasionally use 10 hertz auto fire in my run, but is only used for point blanking large ships or large planes. I actually find auto fire to be a hindrance in this game since the shot limit is so low. That is definitely true. And there, you, as you mentioned yourself, on the geo, in the Saturn version, how you had to differentiate between low shot and high shot depending upon the size of the plane. 
and I found myself doing the same thing using L1 and R1 on the PlayStation port. I don't even find much of a difference between autofire and just keep tapping while point blanking besides saving my thumb from the pain of multiple long hour runs. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't have auto if you're trying to do this on a regular pad without auto fire, God bless you and good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Gollum uh shared some thoughts as well. He said the green fighter jets that come in around stage sixteen are so refreshing. I think they circle around like regular, like the regular green biplane, then swerve toward you once their heading is south. Is that right? Or, I don't know my World War II history. What direction are we traveling here? Surely this game does not take place on a strictly south to north trajectory. Other than that, it really is the same few planes over and over and over. It becomes a fight against highway hypnosis, or... In, I guess in this case, Battle of Midway Hypnosis, where you watch the same planes do the same maneuvers repeatedly and try to maintain focus. Autofire definitely helps in this regard, since I haven't developed endurance for rapid fire much longer than 30 minutes. Not that my thumb falls off, but it doesn't feel good. He also says, is it just me, or is the first stage weirdly hard? I always lose a couple of lives there and think my credit is scrapped, but then I'll survive past it and have a fine run. And yeah, I, I've noticed that too. Like I said earlier, I, I, uh, it has a way of humbling you very quickly, where in the very first stage you can get sniped by an enemy and just lose a life. Especially, I find it especially annoying when I just get the power up to get the quad, the quad shot and within seconds we'll get sniped <laughs> yeah it's definitely something that i can more like of a battle of a, as he mentioned here in here highway hypnosis it's a battle of attrition and there is sooner or later you're going to make a mistake not whether it be in the run random number generator that you're dealing with the arcade or with the slow speed and just monotony of the nes version yeah uh, Normatron also says, uh, I may try a little more on the NES version of the game, but this is my high score uh, I was able to take a snapshot of, which he posted in the forum. He says, it's funny, I can get much farther in this one, and the one on the Cop Capcom collection, uh, arcade collection I like more, even though it drives me crazy. And I would echo that. You know, the NES version is easier to play and easier to get further in because of the things that we mentioned before. But the port is just so riddled with issues that, yeah, the arcade original is more fun to play because it's more hectic, it's more frenetic. You know, you definitely have to be a lot more on your toes with it. But it does get maddening pretty quickly because of all the RNG and how difficult it is to maneuver through, uh, you know, waves of planes and bullet spam and all that. It's it's definitely something that, that will be okay to deal with in short bursts, but if you're dealing with something for an hour and a half, it, it does truly try your patience. Definitely. So, uh, any final thoughts, I guess, on 1942? It's something that I think I could see myself coming back to again and definitely playing the NES version again despite its faults. But if you're not coming in for 
something to enjoy or for maybe in some ways for the historical aspect of it, you might want to just skip and go directly to 1943. Yeah, I, you know, this is one of those things where I could see myself pulling the Capcom Classics collection or or the Capcom Generations out and mess around with 1942 for 20-30 minutes and go, okay, that was fun. Now it's time to move on and either go to 1943 or you know something else that that is going to be that's going to have more depth and be more fun to play for a longer amount of time or you know just to to kind of focus on more specifically. So that is 1942 by Capcom. What do we have coming next? We're recording this in November, so right now we're playing Steel Empire. And we're looking at all versions of that game. Uh, of course, the Sega Genesis and Mega Drive original. Um, it was released on the Game Boy Advance uh, that came out in Japan and Europe. Sadly, we did not get it here in the States. Uh, it was also released later on the 3DS in the eShop and has been recently released within the last few months on Steam, which is uh, based on that 3DS release. And uh, so... We've got some interesting conversations already going on in the forum, and this is going to be a fun one to talk about, I think. Yeah, this is the one that's done, I believe, by Hot B, which gives you the... I really like the f fact that it gives you two different planes, to, well, a plane and a blimp to choose from. The steampunk aesthetic is really nice. You have what's sort of a oddity... Uh, in a shmup, you have the ability to shoot forwards and backwards, which I really liked in uh, their previous game, Over Horizon. Adds a little bit to the, a little bit different way that the flow goes. And overall, I was really impressed by this game. It's something that if I had just seen it by the box art alone, I wouldn't have given it a chance. It, it, it's not something that, that draws its attention to, such as, let's say, Musha. On there, sure. it, it's definitely something that... I hate to use this word, but would probably be considered a hidden gem had it had it not been for the internet. Sure. So look forward to our discussion of that next month when uh, when we when we have the next episode of the podcast in December. We're going to be doing our first head-to-head side-by-side -head, uh, -side comparison here. We're going to be taking a look at a couple of of early what I'll call proto shmups non-scrolling games from kind of that era of the uh, early arcade and Atari 2600 kind of first generation games that sort of take the Space Invaders and Galaxian formula and iterate on it in their own way. And so we'll be looking at iMagic's Demon Attack and then Spider Fighter from Activision, both on the Atari 2600. Super easy games to play, pick up and play for a few minutes and try to get a high score and see what you can do. We'll be looking at those two side by side to see what each one brings to the table that's unique and, and how they compare. And uh, it'll be a real interesting thing. For those of you who are uh, participating with us on a month by month basis, you know, we know that everybody's busy in December and, um, you know, there's always a December competition with the. Uh, the regular playthrough and that you know is kind of tied in with the RF Generation Playcast, and so this year they're doing the golf tournament. So we figure let's do something light and easy. It's not going to take people away from 
their other commitments and their families and things like that during the holiday season. And that way, you know, we can still kind of do something fun that's not going to be a big time commitment. And Spider Fighter should be available on the Activision anthology that you can find on the PS2. And I believe it's also on the Game Boy Advance. Yeah, and I want to say that Demon Attack has been included in one or more uh, Activision compilations because I I want to say that Activision either bought the rights or licensed the rights to several iMagic games. And I also think that more than one of the Atari flashback devices also has Demon Attack on it. Um, so outside of original hardware, there are plenty of ways to play both of these games. We'd like to give some shout-outs. Um, of course, we want to shout-out Sir Flash of Studio Mud Prince and Bullet Heaven. He designed the logo for the podcast. And speaking of our logo, we now have T-shirts. Uh, if you go to redbubble.com, we have the Shoot the Core Cast logo shirts there. Um, we'll have a link in the, the forum post for the podcast to link you directly to that location. But if you just go to redbubble.com and search Shoot the Core, you'll see our shirt as one of the top results. And uh, you'll be able to buy a t-shirt and uh, support the podcast that way by, you know, representing and spreading the uh, the the shoot 'em up love, so to speak, by uh, by buying a shirt and uh, you know getting the word out. Also, like to shoot out uh, shout out Kogasu, who provided the intro and outro music. Um, awesome guitar remixes of Gallantry from the Raiden series, and then also uh, track from Gradius Three. And of course, again, rfgeneration.com and the RF Generation Playcast uh, podcast companion for that. And um, always great listen on that podcast, so make sure you check that out as well. We also need to give a major shout out to Pericles, who was gracious enough to let us use the audio portion of his 1942 clear that he put up on his YouTube channel, um, since there's not really much in the way of music in 1942, I thought it would be nice to have something in the background. So we actually just used the full audio from his his clear that he did of the game. So again, thanks to Pericles. Make sure you check his channel out on YouTube. Just search Pericles STG. That is P-E-R-I-K-L-E-S space S-T-G and check out all of his various excellent shoot 'em up videos. Anything else that you want to mention or shout out before we uh, call it a night? I just want to thank you for listening and hope to see you for this November for Steel Empire. Sounds great. Thank you all so much for listening and have yourselves a great day.